Let's pray together. Our Lord, we need to hear from you this morning. Uh, We do. We need to hear from you this morning. Your word is what we need this morning. We need to be filled by your word. We need to be uh, provided for by your word. Your word is able to make us wise for salvation. Your word is able to encourage our hearts. It's able to lead us to action. It's able to give us hope in this broken world. And so we really do pray and we ask that you would do all of that and so much more, even more than we are able to ask you would answer even better than we are able to pray and lord even as we sit in these seats you know our lives individually you know how we walk into this room this morning Uh, you know our cares and our worries and our anxieties so we pray and we ask lord would you use your word powerfully to be able to challenge us and transform us better than any preacher can prepare your word is able so we trust in it it's in jesus name that we pray Amen. You know, it almost feels like every time I get a chance to come to the pulpit, it's like there's another example of tragedy in this world. I'm sure just like many of you, I woke up on Monday morning hearing the news about the massacre in Las Vegas. And it was devastating to hear all the details. As I was hearing them unfold, I just felt like this is crazy. I can't believe this is happening. Uh, 58 people killed and, and over 500 people who were injured. I, I was actually sitting at a restaurant in the city on, Sunday, um, on Monday when, when this was going on, and I was, there was a TV in the background, and I was watching TV as I was eating, and I just felt so distracted by what I was seeing because I just saw this footage over and over again, a loop that was playing over and over again of people just running, running for their lives, running to get out of the way of gunfire, and I couldn't help but think for a second, you know, These are people that are just like us. They're they're people that are just like us. That could have been any one of us. I mean, these people were doing very normal things uh, on a Sunday night, right? They were at a, a concert. They were listening to music. They're doing things that we do all the time. They were with friends and and family and loved ones. It was probably exciting for them because they were getting a chance to see their favorite artist. It was supposed to be the highlight of their weekend. Right? The thing that they were waiting for, coming to see together. And instead, it was unforgettable for all the wrong reasons. And this week, as I began to hear about their stories and, and learn more about who these people were, my heart began to sink. I mean, these were sons and daughters that we were talking about. These are fathers and mothers. They were police officers and nurses. They were coaches and, and fishermen. And today, instead of getting ready for football like we are or or getting ready for lunch in just a few moments, these families will be planning funerals and trying to understand what in the world just happened. What was that last week all about? What exactly is going on? The, The whole thing is just so heartbreaking. But do you know what's horrible? If we were to be honest... As devastating as all of this stuff it is, and it really is devastating, there's a sense in which Las Vegas is just sort of the the news story for the hour. I mean, consider the fact that just a week ago, our concern was for the situation in Puerto Rico, right? I mean, Keith stood up here last week, and he led us through a time of prayer, and he told us facts like that the majority of the island is without power that they don't have things like clean water or food to eat, 
there's power and politics at play and, and that folks are being robbed and, and, and assaulted for simple things like gas and just basic necessities of life. And, and we heard those things last week and our hearts were grieving for what was going on. But you see, now, just seven days later, seven days later, the tragedy in Puerto Rico is now overshadowed by a different tragedy. And it's not at all because the things that are going on in Puerto Rico are any less important today than it was last week. That's not it at all. No, instead, it's because you and I realize that this is what life is like. This is what life is like. You see, there's no shortage of suffering and oppression in this world. This week, it is one thing, and next week, it may be something else. And you see, it's not like this is some sort of new revelation to us. We're not figuring this out for the first time. We've experienced things like this before to know that it's true. No, instead, the, the world that we look out at is exactly the same world that Solomon looked out at as well. For the last month, we've been studying together this book called Ecclesiastes. And, and in it, the preacher, or this man named Solomon, is making observations about how the world works. And he makes observations about everything, everything from people to pleasure, right? From work to wisdom, or he'll talk about time to treasures. And so chapter by chapter, he's he considering a different aspect of what he calls life under the sun. He's looking at different aspects and trying to figure out life under the sun. And do you know what he says? He says, you know what? This is what I've realized. He's saying, there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. What has been done will actually be happening again. You see, the world that we look at is exactly the same world that Solomon looked out into as well. You see, thousands of years ago, when Solomon looked out his window, he saw a world that was just like ours, filled with suffering and oppression. In fact, that's how he begins Ecclesiastes chapter 4. So would you open with me? We're looking at page 555. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the seats in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, we would say we would love for you to have that Bible in it. It's found the words of life. So we would love for you to keep it, take it home with you. But uh, turn, to, turn with me to page 555, and let's take a look at what Solomon says. We're looking at first at verse 1. This is what he says. He says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. What is Solomon saying here? Well, he's essentially saying what we have said, right? That there is no shortage of suffering and oppression in this world. This world, as he observes it, is filled with all kinds of hardship and pain. Every week, every week, every day, there's something new for us to grieve over. Every day, there are powerful people who are exploiting and preying upon the weak. Every day, there are people who are being marginalized and abused and neglected. Every day, there are people who are facing violence, even to the point of losing their lives over this violence. You see, there's no shortage of oppression and suffering in this world. It was true then when Solomon looked out his window, and it still continues to be true today. And just so that we're clear, right, we're not just even talking about oppression that we see on television or that we read about in articles. 
No, there are folks sitting in this room. It might be you. It might be literally people sitting right around you that knows what it looks like to be oppressed. You know, Pastor Sibby and I were sitting around and, and talking last week, and, and we were saying, you know, we, we realized or we were reminded of something uh, that, that we were noticing, and that's this, that, that you know what? People are so much more complex than what you see on the surface, right? Uh, people, their, their stories and, and their backgrounds and their experiences make people so much more complex than what we see on the surface. Because, like, on a day like today, in just a few moments when we're done, we'll wrap up for the day and, and we'll have a bunch of quick conversations with each other, right? We'll catch up on the week and, and we'll talk about the Eagles and we'll talk about uh, what we're planning to do for lunch. And all the while, while we're having all of those conversations with each other, laughter and all of that stuff, it can be true that some of us are going through some intense suffering in life, some intense oppression in life. Like some of us know what it looks like to go through abuse. Some of us who are sitting here this morning in these chairs are being abused verbally, emotionally, and God forbid, some of us are being physically abused, and no one even knows about it. We're not telling anyone. Or some of us know what it's like to be neglected by the, the ones who are supposed to love us, who are supposed to care for us, who are supposed to protect us. I mean, we have spouses who have abandoned us. We have parents who have turned their back on us. And you've been sort of just left to try to figure out life on your own. Or some of us work at jobs where we're being taken advantage of all the time. We have bosses who just make us work unreasonable hours, or they set expectations that are just unattainable. It just cannot happen, no matter how hard you want me to try. But what do you do? Tomorrow morning, you're going to wake up again, and you're going to push through. You're going to push through because the last thing you want is to be able to, to lose your job. Well, Solomon says, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And there were many. I saw all the oppressions that were done under the sun. But you see, not only have I seen the oppressions, I've also seen the tears of those who are being oppressed. Not only have I seen oppressions, I've seen the tears of the oppressed. You know, when he says that, it's, at first you feel like, why is he saying that? Why is he making a distinction? But the distinction is important because I think he's making a point here. You know, when we talk about oppression, there's a tendency for us when we talk about these things to, to forget that we're talking about real people and real life and, and real hurts and real hardship. Like even with the tragedy like Las Vegas, you know, we, we throw around stats like 58 people killed or over 500 people injured, and it just sounds like stats to us, if we're being honest. But have you ever noticed the difference that it makes when, when you're watching an interview, for example, of a family member of a victim, and you see them tell their story, and all of a sudden there's, there's tears dropping from their face, and you see it over and over again? Or maybe you're, you're seeing the actual pictures of victims, right? So it's not just a stat anymore. It's not just a number anymore, but actual pictures. And you read about their lives and the things that they were interested in and the things that they were all about, and, and it changes something. You know, it's sort of like a stat can make you intellectually bothered by something, but seeing the tears of the oppressed can make you feel, it can make you feel the weight of their situation. All of a sudden, it's not just stats and numbers anymore. 
These are real people that we're talking about. Not just out there, even in here. And that's what Solomon says. He says, he has seen oppression. He has seen oppression, but what's more, he has seen the tears of the oppressed. And here's what's overwhelming for him about it. He says, he sees the tears of the oppressed, and there's no one to wipe those tears. He says, there was no one to comfort them. There's no one to comfort them. In fact, it bothers him so much that he says it twice. There was no one to comfort them. In fact, it bothers him so much that he comes to a really dark conclusion. Look at verse 2 and 3. He says, And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. What is Solomon saying here? He's saying, listen, I've seen oppression. I've seen the, the tears of the oppressed. And I can't help but feel like the dead are better off than those who are living. It would be better to be dead than to be alive, is what Solomon's saying. In fact, he goes one step further and he says, actually, let me take that back. He would say, better than the living and the dead are the ones who are actually never even born. It would be better if you were just never even born, so that your eyes wouldn't have to see the things that we have seen. And you see, Solomon isn't the first to express this sort of idea, right? For example, a man named Job. Some of you know about him about the, from the Bible. This is a man who, who faced intense uh, suffering and pain in his life. And then in Job chapter 3, he says this. He says, let the day perish on which I was born. Let the day perish on which I was born. What is he saying? He's saying basically, I wish my birthday never happened. I, I wish I never came into this world. I never, that day that I was born, I wish that day never existed. But it's not just Job. For example, we see a prophet in the Bible named Jeremiah who experienced so much sorrow and so much pain in his life that he says this in Jeremiah 20. He says, why did I even come out of my mother's womb to see toil and sorrow and to live my life in shame? What's Jeremiah saying? He's saying it, it would be better if I was just never born than to have to go through this. You see, the evil and suffering that surrounded these men was so real, it was so intense, that they wished that they were never even born. It's sort of like, if you could translate this idea into an equation, it would be this, right? It would be that zero is greater than one. That zero is greater than one. That oppression and suffering is so hard in this world that, that death is better than life, is what he's saying. Now, if you've been going through this series in Ecclesiastes with us, especially if you were here last week with us, you would probably say, listen, uh, you say, Solomon, bud, you got to relax, right? You, you got you to you gotta relax a little bit. Because do you remember it was you last week in the last chapter that said that God will judge the world, right? You said God will judge the world, uh, that, that God seeks out what's been driven away and he brings back so that no uh, act of oppression or no injustice that's ever been done will go unjudged. In fact, he will reach back into the past, bring it so that he can judge it again, that injustice and, and, and oppression, it will be taken care of. You said that, right, Solomon, last week, right? So you just need to be patient. Be patient, bud, and re relax. It's coming. But you see, that's when we realize that the Solomon's point in this chapter isn't to tell you the solution to the problem of oppression. 
Because like he said in chapter 3, that day is coming, right? That day is coming. Judgment is coming. That's the solution to the problem of oppression. No, instead, in this chapter, in the chapter that we're looking at this morning, he wants to tell you, how do you survive? How do you actually live in a world that's filled with oppression? How do you live in a world now that's filled with oppression? We know judgment is coming, but how do I do it now in this world that's filled with oppression? And that's why I'm so glad that chapter 4 doesn't end with verse 3, right? That would be such a bleak way for us to finish. It doesn't. Because here's what he's about to tell us. He's saying, you know, if the reality of oppression makes Solomon say that zero is better than one, that zero is better than one, well, then the only way to live a life in a world filled with oppression is actually for us to believe another equation. We need to believe another equation. And that equation is that two is better than one. I look in the world, I see oppression, I feel like zero is better than one. But in order for me to be able to live in this world, I need to believe another equation. And that's that two is better than one. Let's see what Solomon means. Let's look down to verses 9 to 12. This is what he says. He says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. What's Solomon saying here? It's pretty simple. He's simply saying this. He's saying, listen, life is filled with oppression and suffering. Life is filled with oppression and suffering, so don't go through life alone. Right? Life is filled with oppression and suffering, so don't go through life alone. Can I, can I push this a little bit further and even make it personal and applicable to us here? I would say this to you. Seven Mile Road. Seven Mile Road. Life is hard and it's filled with suffering. And that's why God has given you this community. Life is hard and filled with suffering. And so that's why God has given you this community. The people that are sitting in front of you and behind you, all around you. He has given you this community for that reason. Let me tell you a story. So this past Monday, my daughter Asha, uh, my son Liam and I, we took a field trip out into the city to go see Independence Mall. It was their first time ever seeing Independence Hall. So we went out there. And so the reason is because my daughter Asha was trying, we're trying something new this year. We're doing homeschooling together. We don't know. We're trying to figure this stuff out. We're, it's, it's hard, but it's, it's good. And so we're, we're trying to figure it out. And it just so happens that Pastor Jay's kids are also in the same homeschooling group. It's called CC. There's a group of us that are doing it. And so this past Monday was sort of our first field trip of the year. We're going out and doing a field trip together. And so there were like uh, 40 children uh, and, and, and 20 women and then two dads. It was just me and a Jay, and we were on this trip together, right? And you see, as the reason is because our wives are much smarter than us, and so they came up with this evil plan to send us out into the city, and they didn't make any mention of the fact that there would be no other men there. But we're godly husbands, and so we do it, right? And so we, we don't complain or we don't call them out from the pulpit, right? We just kind of, we kind of just let it happen. And so we're, here we are. We're just kind of walking around uh, the city with a large group of children and women, just walking around, right? Uh, but that's not the point of my story here. I just wanted you to know that and even, even address my wife if you feel so fit. What I wanted to emphasize, though, was what we immediately did once we got downtown, 
You see, as soon as we stepped out of the parking garage and we got to the corner of Fifth and Market, it, uh, we did something immediately. Uh, Jay started screaming out instructions, right? And, and he said, listen, Hannah and Asha, you guys are buddies. And he said, Micah, you're with me. And he said, Liam, you're with your dad. You need to stay with each other and you're responsible for each other. And that made perfect sense, right? Because here's the thing. I love my city. There is no greater city in the world than Philadelphia. Philadelphia is the greatest city in the world. But Philly is big, and it can be dangerous, and often Philadelphians couldn't care less about you, right? It's the truth. So if our children are going to walk through the mean streets of Philadelphia, they're not going to do it alone. And that's what the heart of what Solomon is saying here. He's saying, listen, the world is big, and it's oppressive, and it's filled with people who couldn't care less about you. And that's why you need to navigate this world in community. That's why God has given you this community with filled people who can care about you and that you can care for as well. And so what does Solomon do? He begins unpacking this idea. He, he paints a few pictures of, of what this could look like, right? And so he says, listen, uh, two are better than one, and so let me give you three reasons why. First, in verse 10, he says this. He says, because if one of you falls, there will be someone there to pick you up. If one of you falls, there will be someone there to pick you up. In fact, Solomon says, I feel really bad for the person who falls who has no one to catch them. Friends, can I tell you, I don't need to convince you that life is hard. I don't need to convince you that life is hard, right? I've heard your stories. You've told me your stories. I've told you my stories. Life is hard. Many of us are living really hard lives. Folks sitting in this room are going through all forms of suffering. In, people in this room are going through broken relationships, financial hardships, struggles with addictions of many kind, and, and sinful decisions that they've made. And so the question obviously isn't whether or not you will fall, because you will fall. But rather, will there be someone there to pick you back up when you do fall? Because if we were all alone, we might go down and stay down. But that's why Solomon tells us that we need community. When we live life in community, we can depend on others to pick us back up again. Or look at the second reason. In verse 11, this is what he says. He says, two is better than one, because if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? If two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? All the single guys in here are, are highlighting the heck out of that verse, right? That's like their new pickup line. Well, baby, you know, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, 11 says, I'm just trying to be obedient to God, you know? But that's not what this verse is saying, right? We read this and we simply think, you know, this is talking about lying together, but it's much deeper than that. This verse is reminding us that all of us go through seasons that feel like winter, it feels like winter for us. When the, when the hardships and the realities of life have you feeling down and depressed, you're living with, with fears and anxieties in ways that you can't even explain. Even if, if you wanted to, you couldn't explain. When, you're, when your heart becomes numb to the things of God, when you find yourself doubting and questioning things that you've never doubted or questioned before because you're in the, the thick of winter. Well, Solomon says, in seasons like that, you need someone to keep you from freezing to death. You need someone to, to point you to truth, 
to, to pray for you, to encourage your heart, to care for your soul. Because you see, winter is a hard season to face on your own, but it's coming. And some of you are here already in winter. So whether it's here now or whether it's on its way, you need someone to keep you warm, Solomon says. Then finally in verse 12, Solomon says, Two is better than one because though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. What is Solomon saying? Solomon's saying, listen, if you're going to live in this world, you're going to need to know how to fight, right? It requires you to be able to fight if you live in this world. Because you see, temptation is trying to slip you up. Temptation is trying to slip you up. Sin is trying to, to knock you down. And on top of all of that, you have this enemy who seeks to destroy you. Do you not see that? And you see, if, you, if your plan in life is to try to navigate this life on your own, what Solomon's saying is it's going to leave you with a bunch of bruises. It might even take you out. But if you fight these battles with someone on your side, you have a chance to overcome these realities and to overcome these enemies. Why? The idea here is simply because there's strength in numbers. Two is better than one. You know what? Three is even better. The strength in numbers. These people can help you see things that you can't see for yourself. They can help you fight things that you can't fight for yourself. You see, on your own, you're susceptible to all sorts of attacks. But when others are with you, there's a greater chance for you to be able to withstand it. That's what Solomon's trying to say. And so with each example... What Solomon is hoping that you will see, what I will see is this. Seven Mile Road, life is hard. Life is hard, and it's filled with suffering. And that's why God has given you this community. So that there can be people that care for you and that you can care for as well. But here's the thing. I think we all know this, Right? Solomon isn't saying some sort of mind-blowing new idea that we have never heard before. I think we know that we're called to live life together. We know that we're supposed to be for each other and to, to help each other, to confess our sins to one another, to challenge one another. We know those things. In fact, we probably beat those things to death here. We talk about that stuff all the time. We talk about that stuff all the time, emphasize it all the time. But then the question is, if that's true, if we know that, why do so few of us have relationships like this? We all know we should. We know that it's a better way for us to live our lives. We know that. But then why do so few of us walk in this kind of deep and spiritual life-giving fellowship with each other? Well, Solomon has some ideas. In fact, he has three. Look at, back at verse 4. This is what he says. He says, Then I saw all the toil and all skill in work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. What's Solomon saying? He's saying, listen, remember, life is hard. And that's why we need each other. We need each other so we can care for one another and love one another. But do you know what kills the possibility of such community, of that kind of community? He says, jealousy does. In fact, Solomon would say, you know what? You guys are some of the most hardest working people that I know. You guys are some of the most hardest working people I know. You put all sorts of energy and skill into your work. 
You've gotten to the top of your field, some of you. You've climbed every ladder there is to climb. You pour yourself into everything that you do. But if you were to be honest, the reason for your hard work and labor is because you have one eye that's sort of continuously focused on the Joneses, right? You're, you're continuously looking at them, and you can't help but stare at them. You watch their lives, and you're trying everything that you can do to keep up with them, to even hopefully move past them one day, only to be able to find another set of Joneses that you can keep your eye focused on. And you see, instead of living life together because life is hard, we make life even more difficult by trying to outdo one another. And do you know what that leads to, Seven Mile Road? It leads to us becoming a bunch of pretenders. What do I mean? It makes us pretenders because we can never really rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Because if we could be honest, and if you could see into the, to the dark places of my heart, I can't rejoice with those people because in all honesty, I believe I deserve what they have. And it messes me up when I see them do so well. And it, the truth is, we don't even really mourn with those who are mourning. Because in all honesty, if you could see into the, to the dark places of my heart, if I could just be honest with you for a second, I can't mourn with those who are mourning because my life is hard enough. And I care about my life, to be honest, more than I care about your life. And Solomon says, if you live that way, you won't experience community. You won't experience companionship because your life is sort of surrounded by the smoke of, of competition and jealousy. And Solomon says, it's vanity. Living life that way is meaningless, he says. It's meaningless. It's vapor. It may make you happy for a short while, but it will leave you miserable in the end. And if you live like that, Solomon says, it's like striving after the wind. You see, life is hard, and jealousy will kill any real chance of living in genuine community. It will. But it's not even just jealousy. Look at what else kills community. Look at verse 5. It says, The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. What's Solomon saying? He's saying, listen, jealousy, it will absolutely kill community. It will. But so will laziness. Laziness will kill community as well. The idea of a fool who folds his hands is sort of this idea of someone who doesn't put effort into things. Sure, he knows that life requires him to work, but he's not going to really lift a finger. Or, or he knows for sure community requires him to make an effort, but he's sort of going to, he's going to wait until someone reaches out to him. Right? That's sort of the posture. But here's the thing. No one... No one stumbles into deep, meaningful community. It doesn't happen. It's not like, hey, you know what? Yesterday, nobody knew me, and I didn't know anybody, and we didn't really share lives. But this morning, I woke up, and we really are sharing lives with each other. We know about each other's needs and desires, and it doesn't happen that way, right? No, it has to be worked for. It has to be fought for. Sacrifices will need to be made. Because can I tell you, in a world filled with difficulty and suffering, living in isolation is the worst place that you can be. In this world that is filled with difficulty and suffering, whether you're going through it right now or not, it's the worst place that you can be if you're living in isolation. And to be honest, 
To be honest, that's exactly where some of you are right now. You're living in isolation. I know because I've talked to you. Life is hard. You're experiencing winter, but you don't tell a soul. You won't let anyone into your life. You're just trying to navigate it through it on your own, trying to deal with it on your, by yourself. And Solomon is saying, if that's true, you're slowly eating away at yourself, is what he says. You might actually think that there's safety and, and comfort in isolation, but in actuality, you're destroying yourself by living this way, Solomon would say. Well, Solomon has one more killer of community. Look at verses 6 to 8. It says this. It says, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, for, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling? For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. What does Solomon say kill, kills community? He's saying work kills community. It's interesting because if you were paying attention last week, you would have saw Solomon says that he says something different almost. He says last week, he said, finding pleasure in your work is actually a gift from God, he says, right? But it sort of seems like right now, it's like he changes his mind and he says that work is a killer of community. So what's the deal, right? What's, what's Solomon saying? Well, you see, when you unpack it, you realize that these two statements are not contradictory at all. It's almost like the proverb that we often say. We'll say, you know, some people work to live and other people live to work. You've heard that before, right? Some people work to live and other people live to work. And the person that Solomon is describing in verses 6 to 8 is definitely the latter. It's the person who lives to work. Consider what he says about him. He says, this person is all alone. There's no one else in his life, no brother, no son. He has no relationships. And I would say, it's not even just like, hey, the, he actually has no brothers. He actually has no sons. It's not even that. It's that he does have brothers. He does have sons. But the way that he works, there really is no relationship in that way. Right? There is no reality of that relationship. But guess what? There's no end to his work. He works and works and works and works with no end in sight. Why? Well, Solomon says, because... He's never satisfied. He's never satisfied with his riches or his accomplishments. He's never satisfied. He always has his eyes set on something new. Something new that he wants to buy. Some new position or title that he wants to have. There's always something new. And he's so busy working and shopping and climbing ladder after ladder that he never stops to ask himself, who am I working for? Why do I work these hours? Why do I do the things that I'm doing? Why do I even have all this junk in my house? What has my life come to? And it's sort of like in this process, he has acquired the whole world, but has lost everything that is valuable in the process. You know, one of the things that I get a chance to do as a, as a pastor is to be able to do premarital counseling for couples who are getting ready to get married. And, and one of the exercises that, we're, that we do in the beginning is to kind of talk through their lives and their backgrounds, their upbringing, their family of origin, we call it, right? So we kind of talk through those things. And you know what? In the last five years, do you know 
what is something that I've never heard before. I've never heard anyone say, you know, my dad hated me. My dad hated me, and you know why? Yup, he hated me because he made me drive around this 98 Corolla, right? And it was ugly, and people stared at me, and it kicked back sometimes when I was driving. I just, when I get in that car, it was a reminder to me that he hated me, and the truth is I hated him. I've never heard anyone talk that way, and people have been honest. But you see, what I have heard, and what I have talked with women, I've heard this. I've talked with grown women. Who, who drive around $40,000 cars and have a really skewed understanding of their own value. I have seen that. In fact, I've seen that time and time again. You see, dad was so busy working and buying and, and, and climbing that he forfeited genuine relationships, even relationships at home. So what is Solomon saying? Look at verse 6. He says, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. What does that mean? He says, either we will be workaholics, right? With two greedy hands, holding on to the things of this world, grasping for as much that we can grasp for, while ignoring the people of this world, or we will live with quietness or contentment. With one hand, you will work and you will work hard, and you will work with great pleasure and enjoyment, but it will free up the other hand to actually care for people, to love people, to provide for the people that are in your lives. You see, Solomon says, giving your entire life to work while ignoring people, it's vanity. It's meaningless. It's, it's vapor. It's like chasing after the wind. It may make you happy for a short while, but it will leave you miserable in the end. No, instead, Solomon says, learn to live with contentment, with quietness, and give yourself to people instead of being consumed by things. Some of my wrote, this life is filled with oppression and suffering, so you can't go through life alone. You need community. You need this community, Right? And there are a million things that are trying to get in your way for the chance to be in community. But Solomon needs you to remember that in this oppressive world, two is greater than one. Two is greater than one. You weren't meant to go through this life alone. That's why God has given you this church. But do you want to hear one of the most beautiful ironies of this whole thing? You see, the only reason that you and I can live in genuine, life-giving community in a world filled with suffering is because Jesus willingly suffered and was oppressed and ultimately died, and he did it all alone. You see, yes, two is better than one. Two is better than one. But Jesus was left all to himself, all by himself. He was rejected by Israel. He was deserted by his disciples. And then ultimately, in some inexplicable way, he was even abandoned by his father too. But because he died and because he rose again, our community is greater than anything Solomon could have ever have imagined. Because you see, Jesus' death and resurrection didn't just create community. It created a family. It created a family. Sefema wrote, if you're here this morning and you have trusted in Christ, 
my prayer for us would be that God would give you eyes to see that this room is literally filled with your family. This room is literally filled with your family. God is our father, and Jesus is our elder brother. And sitting around you are all around you, in front of you, behind you, around you, are your brothers and sisters. You see, Jesus died to be able to form these relationships. You see, Jesus died alone so that you wouldn't have to live alone in this hard world. Jesus gave us family so that we can care for one another, that we can pick each other up when we fall, that we can fight for one another when we're being attacked, so that when you and I face oppression and suffering in this world, there will surely be someone to comfort us. That Solomon wouldn't have to look at and say, there's no one to comfort them, but we can say, surely there is someone to comfort us to wipe away these tears. You see, there will be a day. There will be a day when oppression and suffering comes to an end. And we say, thank God that there is a day coming. We would even say, come, Lord Jesus, come, come. There is a day. And we long for that day. But until that day, Jesus has given us each other. And so this morning, you can say to the preacher, you can say, preacher, this world is filled with oppression and suffering. And everything about it makes me feel like zero is greater than one. That death would be better than life. But thank God. Thank God that Jesus died alone so that I don't have to live alone. Jesus died alone so I don't have to live alone. So I agree two is better than one. And so I'm going to pour myself into this family that God has given me. So if you say that, if you think that, if you believe that even this morning, I think the preacher would look at you and smile and say, Amen. Amen. This is exactly what I was hoping that you would see. Let's pray.